following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we can learn to use them in new and powerful ways to create the life we've always dreamed of. On our program today, with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon, we'll address who you are, how to come to know what you believe and why, how to accept and love yourself, and how you can make changes that help you create the empowered, happy, successful life you want. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. Uh, this is Irene Conlon. We're broadcasting from Scottsdale, Arizona, and I am so happy to have you with us today. Um, starting a new year, we have a subject I think that's very timely. Take a, a look at the self-improvement blog today. You'll see Michelle Dunbar's picture, reader bio. There's several authors, uh, articles on the blog. Got my tang- tongue all tangled up, don't I? There's several articles on the blog that she has authored. They're very interesting, very good, and I really encourage you to take a look at them. You know, some of us are now finally breathing the sigh of relief that the holidays are over. We made it through. We're relatively unscathed. You know, the decorations are put away. We've lost some of those pounds we gained. Um, Still doing a little work. The holiday stress has been replaced with the new stress of trying to pay off those credit cards. And most of us are back to business as usual. But there are some still struggling to recover. Holidays can be very challenging for the addict who has promised himself or herself that they'd stay clean and sober, but just couldn't do it. The stress was too much, and self-medication with alcohol or the drug of choice momentarily seemed like the only way to cope. And so what do they do now? Now, with a success rate of AA at a dismal something around 5%, now where do they turn? Can they do it alone? Some of them want to say this, you know, I want to do it finally. You know, hey, I really want to get this done. But but how? Where? Uh, we're going to talk about that today. And we have the perfect guest to do it with us. Michelle Dunbar is the executive director of the St. Jude Retreats which offers an innovative and successful non-12-step, non-treatment approach to help people overcome addiction problems. She studied psychology at the State University of New York College at Cortland and at Empire State College. She has more than 20 years' experience in behavioral research and helping people overcome substance use problems. Dunbar developed the St. Jude Family Program and was the sole facilitator of this two-day immersive program, working with spouses, parents, friends, 
and family members of guests who are attending the St. Jude Residential Program. Uh, and I encourage you to take a, a look at that program. We're going to be sh- sure you get you know, the web address and all those yummy things. It's it's an outstanding program. I've gone through their manuals. Uh, we had their the head of... Well, we had Mark Shearer, who is what is he, Michelle, the, the president he, he CEO, is the program developer. He he program started the program. Develop. He was on. You might take a look at his show. Take a listen to his show, so you get the whole feel of this amazingly successful program. And it is absolutely my pleasure to introduce to you now <laughs> Michelle Dunbar. Michelle, thank you so much. Welcome to the Self Improvement Show. Thank you so much, Irene. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Oh, we're absolutely delighted. There's so many people who suffer so much with addictions of all kinds, um, not just alcohol, not just drugs, but you know, there's a lot of addictions to be had out there, and people are in a great deal of pain. But let's start by finding out who are who you are. Tell us about yourself. Who is Michelle Dunbar? Well, I, I'm 47 years old. I have three children, almost grown. Um, and I did myself overcome a pretty serious substance use problem t- more than 25 years ago now. Uh, and I was actually part of the, uh, Baldwin Research Project of 1990 that was the, the early beginnings of this program. Um, so I, I kind of come from a unique background and, and that was while I was struggling with my substance use problems, I was in school for psychology and, um, trying to fix myself, uh, from, you know, get myself out of the, the emotional problems that I had as well as the substance use problems. Um, and what I found out was, is a lot of the stuff that I was learning there was not accurate information and it was actually making my problems worse. Um, so I did not finish school until, um, you know, until some years ago where I was, uh, after I had overcome the problem myself and I had begun working and researching it for myself. See, that's really interesting that knowing psychology or understanding psychology from the traditional point of view mm-hmm. wasn't helpful. Had you had positive psychology back then, would that have helped? Are you are you into positive psychology? I, you know, I didn't know a lot about it back then. Most of the psychology that the classes that I was taking had to do with uh, problems. Um, it was all focused on sickness and on what makes people sick mentally. And that's probably why I gravitated towards the research end of things, because I thought there must be a solution. I come from a background where I have uh, mental illness in my family, and I really wanted to seek, um, you know, solutions that were not, you know, pharmacological in nature, because I had seen the the damages of of those medications for people, um, you know, close to me. And it wasn't until I was in, like, working here, I started, you know, um, really working for the company that I started doing the research into uh, positive psychology and, you know, the, the work that, the, a lot of work that had been done in it right from the 60s. And I was really amazed that I hadn't heard about it sooner. Would that, do you think with hindsight that would have made a difference? I do. I do. Um, I, I think the information that I was getting 
at that point in time. And I mean, keeping in mind, it was the mid eighties and that was really the, the, the big rise in, um, you know, addiction as a disease and treatment programs and, um, this idea that people, you know, crossed lines where they became powerless. Um, and it was a, there was a big rise in the pharmaceutical industry with respect to psychotropic medications. Um, so even as a 20 year old, I was diagnosed with uh, mental illness. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you came from a point of view of knowing that the medications weren't the answer, knowing that psychology wasn't the answer, and coming into did did you tell me before the show started that your father was one of the the yes. original researchers? So you came right. in from a research point of view, what motivation <laughs> to find an answer you must have had? My well, I think it kind of started with my father's father um, came back from World War II um, and really struggled with alcohol problems. Um, He was in and out of uh, you know psychiatric hospitals from the late 1940s until he died in the mid 80s, and he he went periods of time where he was sober. Um, not going to AA, not doing those things, although he was told he had to. Um, but even as a sober man, because he became, it seemed like he had sober bouts when it was important to him. Like um, when we were young and he got to live with us and, and take care of us because both my parents worked, um, he managed to, to put four, about four years together sober. He still believed that alcohol, he was an alcoholic and that it would kill him one day and he died a young man. I mean, he was, he was 60, 68 years old when he died. Um, and it was from complications due to, uh, um, alcohol withdrawal. And that's really sort of, in a way, the beginning of St. Jude's then. It is. Tell us a little bit about St. Jude's. We had Mark Shearer on. Uh, he gave it from his perspective, but uh, you, you you would have your own perspective. And, and St. Jude's is different. Most people are familiar with the 12-step program with AA, but right. you know, that's not St. Jude's. No, and you know what's interesting about our research is we started from that position. We all met in AA, um, in and around AA and AA meetings, um, because when my dad got sober, he was got sober. He was forced into forced to go to meetings because of a DWI um, in the seventies, in the mid seventies. That's where he had gone, but he never he he would not acknowledge that he had a disease. He would never say that he was powerless. He always kept everything at arm's length because he felt that those things were very negative and harmful to people. So when he started the research project, when he retired um, from his career and he took this on as his second career, um, he specifically took it on, you know, I think possibly because he saw us, I'm the oldest of three, and he saw us growing up to have our own problems, and I think he wanted to find a solution, you know, and he told the people that he did the study with, well, the thing that was primarily different was you're not powerless, and you don't have a disease, and so 
that was really where the starting point was for the program was let's tell people, whether it's right or not, let's assume that if we tell people positive information, A, that they're powerful, and B, that they're not going to be sick forever, that they can overcome this, um, then let's see where that leads us. And out of the all of the subjects that he told that to um, between 1989 and 1990, um, and I believe there are 39 of us, 75% of us overcame the problem and we're still, you know, sober drug free after one year. And to this day, the vast majority of us, I think it's close to 70%, our, our lives are great. You know, we, we overcame it. We, we got careers and families and, um, and we just went on to live great lives. Were you were you aware, or was he aware? I guess uh, at that time, of the success rate. I, I really want to say failure rate. This the success I rate know. of AA. Uh, was that uh, information available back then? Because everybody thought AA was so wonderful and was the right. only answer. He wasn't, he didn't know anecdotally because of his experiences when he went to AA and then when he went back and was doing the research, he did it for himself. Not only in the Baldwin Research Project of 1990, he had the, the, our group and then he had a, a just a regular, you know, we had a, uh, a couple meetings that he kept track of how many people came and went from and, and their the success rate for young people, he did people under 30 years old, ended up being 0% at the end of one year. Um, if you were not in our group, none of the, the young people that he was following after one year were still coming to the meeting, so he assumed that they were drunk. Um, and, I mean, that was, that to him was very eye-opening. It was remarkable. It, he did not, he had no idea that it was, he was going to find that. He, he did not predict it, um, and that's when he realized, wow, there's, there's severe problems with this program. Uh, you know, and I think it's amazing. Uh, there are a lot of things amazing about this whole um, situation. You know that AA is the program used by all the states to send. I guess all the states. I don't know that that's a fact, but most states, you know, in part of their DWI programs or other programs, right. uh, court programs, insist that people go to AA, and um, sometimes that's really not the best option. It's time for us to go to break. When we come back, I want to talk more about this and talk about specifically what people get when they come to St. Jude's. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Michelle Dunbar, saying stay tuned. We're going to be right back with more. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. When you think of inspiring women, who comes to mind? Is it a visionary like Oprah Winfrey? Political or legal figures like Hillary Clinton or Sonia Sotomayor? Or how about entrepreneurial business leaders like Meg Whitman? No matter whom you might be thinking of, make sure to add one more to that list. Deanne DeMarco. She's the host of Today's Inspiring Women. Each week, Deanne turns you on to the next rising star in business and leadership and what their successes and challenges have been. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to The Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to The Self-Improvement Show. My guest today is Michelle Dunbar. She is with St. Jude's Retreats, which is an addiction treatment program. Um, I think probably the word treatment should come out of there. Completely. Um, And um, we've been talking a little bit about AA and why it doesn't work. Why does St. Jude's work so well? If if AA has, uh, I guess, really 0 to 5% success rate, you have a success rate of 70% or even higher sometimes. Uh, what makes the difference? What is the program like at St. Jude's that has such a positive impact on people who need help? You know, it's it's what, actually when I was listening to the intro to your show, <clears throat> you talk about empowering people, and that is what our program is designed to do. Um, whereas, you know, treatment programs, and, and we are actually what we are called as a cognitive behavioral education program, um, not a treatment program at all, um, because what, what our program does is it takes people, it guides people through this process, which is what our curriculum is. Um, and we have these certified program pre- presenters or educators um, who work a lot of times one-on-one with people to take to help them through the process, and they really get to identify exactly the areas of their life that they're struggling with, whether it's emotional problems, behavior problems, whatever that is, and then they get to, to decide how they want to proceed, how they want to live. And they really learn about their motivations, um, about, you know, their what inspires them, about what things they like, what things they don't like, um, so that they can have, make informed decisions about their life moving forward. Nobody's telling people what to do. We're not judging people, and we're not tearing people down to build them back up. That is not a um, which is what treatment is designed to do. It's designed to make people think that they are powerless and that they need God or they need some, some outside force to fix them when the only, the only thing that can fix them is within themselves. Let me ask you this. It seems to me, and I may be way off base on this one, but it seems to me that many, maybe to me, it seems like the majority of people who have an alcohol or drug abuse problem are the, the sensitive, brilliant people who really can't cope with everyday stuff, yeah. um, that it's just too hard. So I can see why this program that 
empowers them, brings out their abilities, talents, whatever, lets them see their strengths, let them see who they are. You can see how that would be totally different from going in every week or every day and saying, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic, blah, blah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. is, Is that, do you see that, that many of these people are just so talented? So sensitive, you know, such artists in, in, in many areas. I think business is an artistic area myself. Um, yeah, they are. They're, they're, most of the people that have come through our program specifically are highly intelligent. Some of them are highly functional, um, overachiever kind of people who, you know, they, they, they feel very deeply. They, they're very introspective people. Um, and they, and it's just, it becomes easy. A lot of times their, their brains work overtime, um, and they overanalyze things. And, and, and that could be because we get a lot of people that aren't successful with 12 step programs. And those people are almost never successful with 12 step programs because, you know, once you really start to think the logic behind it, it doesn't make sense. Um, so most highly intelligent people reject a lot of those, the things that they learn there. Um, and highly overanalytical people. One of the things, that was one of the things that was said to me was I was over analytical and I needed to, um, what was that? Take the cotton out of my ears and stuff it in my mouth. (laughs) Oh, oh, really? I was, I was told that, um, by a couple different old timers in AA, um, years ago. That really helped you, didn't it? Oh, it was wonderful. It was, it it helped me know that this probably isn't the right place for me. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Let me ask you this question too. Uh, and these are just sort of coming up into my mind. Some of these people, when they, they've not made it through AA, they've probably had trouble along the way, a couple of DUIs or whatever. And, and they're really, I mean, they feel like they've let everybody down. Mm-hmm. Are, you know, and, and so they have all this guilt to deal with. Do you have to deal with that before they can really get from the program what you have to offer? Or does that sort of take care of itself along the way? It does. It's, it's, it is incorporated into the program. We do talk about, there's, there's components to the program that talk about guilt and dealing with stress and learning um, better. Basically, addiction is habitual thought and behavior. And so the, the program takes people through this process where guilt can also be a habit and depression can also be a habit. And there's, there's all these different emotional habits that, you know, a lot of times are called triggers in treatment. Um, these, these emotional habits that you don't even realize that you're doing. And, and the process that people go through, they really do see clearly, oh yeah, I think this, then I do this, and then I think this, and then I do this. And, and so they can, they get a good sense of what their motivations are at any given moment in time. And, and so later on, they can identify, even after they leave, long after they leave the program, you become really good at identifying, you know, problematic habits in your thought and action and, and things like that. Now, you don't have programs all over the country. You know, tell us a little bit about the programs that you do have, and then I, I, I want to talk about how people can find a program where they are, because everybody can't come to the East Coast. You know, right. 
Right. The West Coast well, people do, have a We do have three locations right now in upstate New York. We are actually working with a detox in Arizona. We have been for the last couple of years. And in, in within the next five years, we do see us ourselves expanding out towards the West Coast, probably in Arizona at that point. Um, and But for now, uh, we do have people come from all over the country. Um, and the people that can't travel or don't feel that they need a residential program, we actually offer a, our program and as a day program via Skype. Our uh, Skype um, instructor lives in New York City. He works out of uh, our satellite office in Manhattan. And, um, you know, he actually can see people in Manhattan as well in a day program type setting. Um, and he basically works on people's schedules. So if they want to meet with him three days a week for an hour and a half, um, he sets that up with them until they're through the program. So let, let me go back and clarify this. You have a program, not it's an online program and they can have counseling one-on-one with a therapist in New York. Is that what you just told me? Basically, yes, yes. He's not a therapist. He's a he's a certified program instructor. Well, um, yeah. He will See, guide I'm... them through the program. They'll they'll meet every day and go over each chapter, um, go through the questions together, um, and then he, they they will have a, a dialogue. And it, it typically lasts about ten ten to twelve weeks to get through the whole program that way. Give us. Your website address. How can people find you? If they want to do a res- residential program, what do they look for? What do, you know, what do they click? If they want to do this online by Skype kind of program, you know, what do they look for on your website? How do people get in touch with you and how do they know what to ask for? I guess is my question. Right. Our website is www. SaintJudeRetreats.com, and that's all spelled out, one word, SaintJudeRetreats.com, and that's for our residential program. Um, for our home program, which is also can be done online via Skype, it's um, www.sj, like St. Jude, homeprogram.com. Excellent. <laughs> Give both of those again. Everybody write this down. <laughs> <laughs> it's www.stjuderetreats.com or www.sjhomeprogram.com. You can also find these addresses on the self-improvement blog, but uh, you know it's really important that you get this and look at this as soon. Before you forget about this show, check this out because it could make all the difference to you or one of your loved ones who's um, having this kind of a struggle. I know that, you know, everything doesn't happen quickly and people need support. And I know that you've worked with the families and loved ones of people who've gone through your program. How important is aftercare support and supporting the family during the person's stay at St. Jude's? Tell us about your family program. My family program was actually designed because there are a lot of programs out there, treatment programs specifically, that force families to go into family therapy and family counseling, 
And, and unfortunately, the family therapy leads them in this direction of, you know, this person has a disease and they're sick, but you should employ tough love and kick them out. And they give them all of this mixed information and, and not entirely accurate information. So what my family program was designed to do was help families get the right information, number one, that, you know, this person doesn't have a disease. They're not powerless over anything. They're not sick. They don't have to be treated with kids' gloves. But at the same time, you know, whether or not you kick them out or you keep helping them, that's a very personal decision that you can make for yourself, and no one should be judging you or telling you how to do that. Um, and, and so what my program does is it takes the families through a process where they get to decide exactly what they want to do, um, and they get a, a clear, they get enough information so they can make a decision that they can feel comfortable with, whatever that is. So I don't, I don't tell, you know, based on their situation, I don't tell them you should do this or you should do that. What they know when they, when they finish the family program is whatever you choose to do has little or no bearing on what your loved one is going to do. If your loved one who's coming through our program wants to drink and get high, they're going to do that. Whether you pay their bills or not pay their bills. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, so that, that really takes some of the pressure off the families, and that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to let them know that your power is the only person you can control is you, the only person they can control is themselves, and so so ultimately, you don't have to overanalyze every decision you make about your loved one. You can just love them and, and do whatever makes you, helps you to sleep at night. You know, if, if helping pay the rent for your son helps you sleep at night, do that. Do that and don't apologize for it. And, um, and so that's, that's really what our program is about, is helping the, the families find their peace. Now, how do you do this? Do the families come to the retreat center that their, their loved one is in? Um, is there an online program for this as well? Because it seems to me that this is a really important component because that person that's in your retreat center is going to come home. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have a program booklet that I, that I wrote, um, that is available. Every family member gets that program, um, when their loved one comes to the program. And then they have the option, they can schedule a phone conference with me. They can, we actually did run for two years. We ran a two-day workshop. I haven't done the two-day workshop in about six or eight months because we've been releasing our new edition of the book. Um, but I will do it upon request if people still want it. Um, but it was very well attended when I was doing it and, and it really, um, the family felt it was invaluable, but, but there's a, a, so much information in the books that I've also recently done just private meetings. People have come in and visited and I spent a few hours with them just going over key parts of the, the family program, which they found very helpful. It seems that this would be a wonderful, wonderful topic for a webinar. <laughs> Absolutely, and we are just, planning to do webinars, not just for the family program, um, but also as part of the um, home program as well. Fantastic. On that note, it's time for us to go to break again. This is Irene Conlon saying stay tuned. We'll be back with more with Michelle Dunbar. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. 
Have you ever noticed that sometimes life just feels easier, especially when judgment of you or anyone else ceases to exist? What if you could function from that space all the time? What if gratitude is the key? Every time you are grateful for someone or something, a new universe opens up. What difference can you create in your life and the world from the energy, space, and consciousness of gratitude? Join us on Access Consciousness Presents Beyond Saying Thank You every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Every one of us confronts challenges that rock our world to the core, making us confused and disoriented, not knowing which way is up. On The Mother Rising, host Margaret Jacobson will nourish that spark that enlivens. You will be both empowered and inspired to create the changes leading you on your path to your own true freedom. Discover your worth and what you are capable of. Tune into The Mother Rising every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to The Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to The Self-Improvement Show. Our guest today is Michelle Dunbar, who's with St. Jude's Retreats, which is an outstanding, uh, high-success-level program for people who are suffering with substance abuse. We were talking a little bit about the aftercare program before we went to break. Do you have anything else you want to add, Michelle, about the aftercare program or the the family program? Is really what Um, I mean, the family program. Yeah, it's... what I wanted to add was the family program is actually included. Um, it is at no additional charge to families. I know a lot of treatment programs um, charge additional for their family programs, um, but but we think it's so essential um, that the families really do understand the process and and really do you know know how to help their loved one when their loved one returns home. It's so important that we do include it um, in our program. And some of the people who have been brainwashed with some of the really old ideas about alcoholism and drug abuse really need this. They, they really need to change their thinking, hear the new stuff, yeah. <laughs> I would say. We didn't talk about aftercare. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you do when the person is, uh, is, goes home? How do you follow up? What kind of support is available for them? 
from you well, at that time? Yeah. Okay, from from the very first week that they're in the program, they meet with a, uh, a career and academic advisor, um, and and they have these focus electives that they can choose so, that are designed to help them um, build a plan for their life once they leave. So that starts really in week one, and they're with us six weeks, and they meet one on one with this with this person um, that is helping them get ready for when they go home, so they can start that process right away. So by the time they're ready to go home um, and it's their last day, they have this plan in place. It's exactly how they want their life to be. And then when they leave, not only do their, do their you know, loved ones who are around them and family and friends, can they serve as a support network because they know what they've been through. They know a little bit about their plan, but also they have access to program staff that they've met with basically indefinitely and for as often as they'd like. Um, most people that leave the program may contact staff once or twice within the first couple of weeks of leaving just to, to let them know how things are going. They like to check in with them. Um, but a lot of people, uh, you know, hit the ground running and, and we don't hear from them for a few months until they let us know, I'm doing great and, you know, this was exactly what I wanted and my life is going exactly where I want. Um, there are a few that will go home and struggle, they'll test the waters a bit, um, and then we still are continuously working with family, with the family, and also with them if they want us to um, while they're home. So it's it's kind of a it's an, an open ended. We're your friends. We want to help you. Um, there's not an additional charge for that. That's magnificent. What about people who have the dual diagnosis of mental illness and addiction? Seems like we're seeing that more and more these days. Can these people get into your program? You know, uh, do you address the mental health programs as well as the problem as well as the addiction? How do you deal with that? Well, actually, what we've seen over the last really 10 to 15 years is it's gone from, uh, you know, about 30% that came to us were dual diagnosed to probably closer to 80%. I think there's a number. I don't think there's not, I don't think there's more that many more people that are mentally ill. Um, but what I do think is it has a lot to do with money and insurance and pharmaceuticals. Um, and, you know, we're kind of in a culture where, um, where if you, you know, everything is, uh, can be labeled as a mental illness now. So yes, we have people that come here, um, that are dual diagnosed. I myself was dual diagnosed at one point in time. Um, and the program really does help to address those things as well. Um, especially a lot of the emotional problems that go along with substance use problems like depression and anxiety and even, um, bipolar, um, those kind of ADHD things that are, uh, that are, that are those milder mental health issues um, can be addressed right through the program. If somebody needs to see a, a mental health professional, we do work with a psychiatrist and we refer people to him. And, and do you have any idea of what the success rate of people who have the dual diagnosis is compared to the people who are there, I want to say simply, it's, there's nothing simple about it, simply for, for substance abuse? You know, we don't have that data. Um, uh, that we haven't separated that out, but that would be a good thing to look at, um, especially because we have so many more people now that are dual diagnosed. I do, I can tell you that a lot of people that come to our program, the reason they want to see the psychiatrist is to get off of the meds that they're on or to, to decrease them significantly. 
Yeah, we are a society that thinks everything has a pill that's going to change your your physiology, and it's it's just not going to happen that way. Well, right. it might change your physiology, but it probably won't make you better. That's my own opinion, by the mine way. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just my opinion. It's mine too. <laughs> I think we give far too many pills and not near enough um, help along the way. Right, what right. do you see a difference in in recovery in the people who do who have an alcohol problem as opposed to a, a, a drug abuse problem? Is there a difference there, or do most people do both? Um, they you know the truth of the matter is the most people don't do both. I used to think that that was true, um, but we tend to see the alcohol problem in people 30 plus and the drug problem in people under 30. Um, there really is almost a demarcation there. And, um, and no, we don't, there's really not a different success rate wise in those people. Um, other than a lot of times when young people come through for, for drugs other than alcohol, um, they are among a group, an ever-growing group of people who, you know, we don't, we don't talk about permanent abstinence here. So if somebody comes through our program as a 20-year-old for heroin, um, they're not told that, well, you can never touch a drop of alcohol the rest of your life or any other substance for that matter. Um, so we're seeing a, a, you know, a little bit of growing population of people who say, you know, in our research and our studies, um, I went through your program for heroin 10 years ago. I was 19 years old. Um, I'm not going to lie to you because in our research, 62% of the people are completely abstinent. Um, but there is 38% that are not. And, and about, we've estimated about half of them are people who have successfully just matured. They've, they've moderated their behaviors. They say, I came through your program for heroin. I'm not going to lie. I occasionally have a glass of wine and, but it's not a problem for me. And then we have a corroborating witness that says, no, they're absolutely right. It's not a problem for them. They don't do heroin. They haven't done it since they went to your program. Um, but they do drink occasionally and it's not an issue. And so that's really interesting and exciting data. Um, so you don't have to tell a, a 19-year-old kid, you you know, you can never take a drink again. Um, you can never, you know. Never have, have a beer with pizza. Exactly. <laughs> you can never have another narcotic if you have surgery when you're 45, 50 years old. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have to tell them that anymore. Do you get a lot of the younger people? We do. We do. We we get a three basic age groups, and that's adolescent to adulthood, which now seems to stretch well into the high 20s. Wow. Um, so like 16 to 28 years old. And then we get the middle, middle-aged people, you know, 40, right around 40 years old. Um, and then people in the retirement age, those, those seem to be the three groups that are best represented. Now, how do you deal with that? Do you have... Age groups mixed, or do you try to keep the adolescents separate from the older people? How does that work? We actually, I love mixing the age groups. When I was director of our retreat in uh, in Hageman, um, and that was about ten years ago now, um, the we had we ranged in age from sixteen to seventy two, the group that I had there, and um, and just the dynamic um, between you know having that kind, it's it's like a family, an extended family environment. Yeah. You know, as a psychologist, how important that is. 
um, for for everyone um, to to be in that kind of environment. It really did work out that way. That you know you can learn. You know the seventy two year old can learn so much from the sixteen year old, and vice versa. And um, if, and a lot of if people they don't can understand that. what that kid is saying. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it but it's it's the dynamic is wonderful. It is. Now, we do have our executive retreat. The average age there is 55. Um, you know, every once in a while we'll get somebody under 30 there, but not typically. Most most people there are over 50 years old. And, that, and that's nice, too. They're very comfortable there. They're all adult professionals. Um, and so it's nice to have that. Um, with the other two retreats, though, it's a larger group. So at any given moment in time, we have three or four people, you know, that are above 50. We have three or four people that are between 30 and 50. And then we have three or four people that are below um, 30. A moment ago, you said something about a corroborative witness. Is, is that the term you used? I know you said witness. Yes. What when is that? Our, Let's talk the, about when we that. We do our surveys. When our surveys have been done for our success rate, which I, I say success rate loosely, it's an abstinence rate. Um, not only do does the survey question, and it's, it's actually done by an independent organization because we know people will lie to us if we call them. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, we the the they ask they call contact the guest the past guest and ask them the question of whether they're drinking and or using drugs <clears throat> and then you make a, we make a separate call to a corroborating witness which is usually the person who paid for them to come through the program who has no reason to lie um, and certainly will be willing to tell us if the person has not been successful um, and so that's what our our abstinence rate that you see on our website is based on is those surveys. So you you have people who actually do the observing, so you know whether or not they're telling you the truth, which really right. makes your success rate believable. And when I first Absolutely. heard it, I thought, oh, I can't be. <laughs> and, then I know. I, and I'd forgotten about the witness. And yes, it can be. Yeah. It can. It it is right on. What what do you do? And I know there are a lot of people who are wondering what on earth to do. When they have someone in the family who has a serious problem, they don't see they have a serious problem. Or even if they do see it, they don't want to do anything about it. What are some ways you can get people to want to get some help? I mean, they're hurting. You know, they, they're yeah. hurting. That that is the hardest. That's the hardest one. When I've, when I've worked with families with this situation and I've... You know, I'm not a fan of interventions. I, I, I tend to think that, you know, if you back somebody into a corner, they, they only have a couple options and none of them are good. Um, what I recommend to families um, a lot of times is to, uh, I, I call it the backdoor approach. You don't, you don't want to approach someone with a drug and alcohol problem from the front door saying, you're doing drugs, you're drinking, it's, it's hurting you, it's hurting the family. I don't know. They already know that they're doing drugs and drinking. They already know that it's causing problems. And the last thing they want to hear is being accused of being the, the center of all the problems in the family. That's what they'll hear. And so, so I always like, if you have a, um, you know, if you have a son that's home and, you know, he came home from college and he's not really doing anything and he's partying with his friends all night and he does not keep in a job and you're really concerned, you don't know for sure, but you know that something bad's going on, um, is, is, you know, opening a conversation that's very non-threatening, that's non-judgmental, that is, 
you know, geez, I noticed you've been struggling with this or that, the other thing, or, um, you know, have you, have you thought about where you want to work? Have you, approach it yeah. with, uh, not, emo, not emotion. Now, if you, if you've already tried those approaches and they don't work, um, we do offer liaison services where we'll come and talk, but it's an invitational type method. And there is invitational interventions that are done around the country. There's a woman, um, out of Colorado, uh, that has, I, I, I think it's called, Arise interventions, and and so we've we've referred to those kinds of people um, where they do an invitational type method that's non confrontational, um, but but that's a last last resort. I mean, a lot of times drug users who are really people who are really struggling with drugs and alcohol think that nobody listens to them, and that's usually because they don't. Um, that, you know, that's, I say that, I'm like, I remember, I remember being there, there was an intervention done with me, nobody listened to me, nobody wanted to hear what I had to say, um, I was just accused of this and that and the other thing, and I felt attacked because I was being attacked, and so that's the last thing that you want to do, um, that, that pushed me away for six months and I didn't have any contact with my family, um, those are not helpful, and I, I could have easily, you know, gone and done something very crazy. And, you know, I can't, and as you were talking about putting somebody in a corner, I'm thinking about a wild animal. And sometimes that's how people that we pull these interventions on must feel. Right. Just trapped. What do I Absolutely. do? Do I run? Do I hit somebody? Do I faint? You know, what, what do I do? Yeah, it's better if the conversation is private, if it's with somebody. A lot of times there's at least one person they listen to. One, if my grandmother had sat down and had a conversation with me, she was my, my closest confidant. She was the, you know, I, I adored her. I respected her. If she had sat down with me and had a conversation with me just about being concerned about my health and welfare, that would have had made a world of difference to me. But it wasn't that. It was my sister and my father and, you know, and a friend, and they were attacking me. Um, so I always recommend if there's one person that you think this person will listen to that, that will be unemotional and that will just sit down and say, you know, I've been concerned about this, this, and this. Is there some way I can help you and approach it from that way? You definitely will have a lot more chance of success. And that makes total sense. A few little bit ago, you you mentioned tough love. Mm-hmm. Tough love doesn't seem much like love to me. And I, I I I took in a kid whose parents kicked him out, and he came to live at my house for a while. Um, yeah. Great kid, <laughs> I loved having him around. Is it how? Is it ever a helpful tool? Is it ever really love? You know. How do you deal with it? What's your idea on tough love? I, I, I'm not a fan, um, and, and I don't call it that. When, when I have parents in the family program, we're talking about, you know, what if, what if, you know, my son comes home and he, and he uses again, you know, do I kick him out? What do I do? And I have them actually, uh, do a, like a, set the expectations up beforehand so that he already knows he's making a choice. Um, so that, like, it, 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 it's a situation where, look at we. I I deserve to be happy too. I these are the things I want for my life. I know what you want for your life, but but this is what I want for my life, and I don't want drugs in my home. And I love you with all my heart, 
but but I'm fearful when you bring drugs into the home. Um, and so if you want to choose that lifestyle, let me help you find another place to live. Um, let me help you set up something else for yourself because I, I, I don't want it in my home and I just don't, I deserve to be happy too. Don't I deserve to feel safe in my home? And, um, you know, so when you approach it from that, that's not, that's not tough love, you know, cutting people off and saying, you're basically saying you're a bad person and I don't want you in my life anymore. Um, there's a different way of approaching that and that is, um, you know, I love you with all my heart and, but I also, you know, love my husband and my husband and I love to have a safe home. And so you see, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to approach things. And, and I always say to families, if you can't, if you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. You know, if you, if you feel like I can't have this in my home anymore, it doesn't have to be a, you know, bam, I'm kicking you out. It can be, um, can I, can I help you with this problem? Um, or can I help you find a place to go that will, you'll be safe? Um, because I, do, I really don't want it here. And, and that's a totally different approach than what we usually think of tough love. The, the, the people who kicked their kid out wouldn't let mm-hmm. him come in the house. He had to sleep out on the patio. Um, that kind yeah. of thing was going on. And I'm thinking, how can a kid recover from that? You know, the interesting thing is I saw him not long ago. And now he's in his 40s. Yeah. And, you know, he was so grateful that I gave him a place to stay. Uh, and he's this beautiful, successful young man now. Yeah. Well, forty to me is young. Yeah. You know, uh, and and they don't and the damage that that kind of advice and the whole tough love idea has done to families has been has been outrageous. I mean, it's it's you, you know I, I've seen it happen, play itself out over and over again because it's not from a position of love; it's from a position of I'm angry with you. I think I think what you've done is awful. I think you're horrible. That's the message the person is getting, is that somehow they're unworthy. And I think that's the purpose of it, is, you know, your behavior, it makes you a bad person, unworthy. And that's, you know, that's why the whole disease idea is so strange, because it's the only disease where the, you know, where the family is told, kick them out. I mean, you can't imagine kicking out a kid with cancer. Now, I don't it's not a disease, um, but at the same time, token um the person is clearly struggling emotionally you and said in um, one of the you know, articles, there are ways to help them you said in one of the articles that you wrote that i put on the blog and right now i can't remember the title of it um that it isn't a disease but it's a matter of choices that every time they take a drink they make a choice um Correct. you talk a little bit about choices in this and and, and making the choice to 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 recover you know to come yeah, through to it Everything, everything we do. There's not a, <clears throat> there's not a point where people cross a line where they lose the power of choice. That never happens because if it really did happen, nobody'd ever stop. They'd never stop smoking. They'd never stop um, abusing drugs. They certainly wouldn't stop doing heroin or crack cocaine um, if it wasn't a matter of choice. Um, what happens is the way, it, the reason it feels like it's not a choice is because it becomes a habitual behavior, and um, as you know, habits can be very hard to break. Um, never impossible, but, but they can be difficult to break. And so once you, once you take away the mystique of it, the power, once you say, you know, you, you haven't lost the power of choice, there's not, not something compelling you to behave this way, um, it really does become a lot easier for people to say, oh, you're right. Because, you know, people get to our program and they're like, well, I didn't have a choice. And I'm like, well, are you drinking right now? They're like, well, no. 
well, you clearly had to stop drinking to come to my program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it know? would seem that at some point they realized that, hey, well, you know what I need help with right now is how to make better choices. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, nobody ever taught me to make a choice. Actually, you know what? Nobody ever taught me to make a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and there is mixed messages to young kids in the educational system as well. Um, thankfully, there is a lot more now that I'm seeing that says, you know, responsible choices and this, that, and the other thing. Unfortunately, it kind of goes a little bit against the whole addiction disease mythology. Yeah. Um, but. But hopefully kids are getting, I think kids are getting, uh, you know, the personal responsibility me- message pretty loud nowadays. It's hope so. Michelle, we are right up to the end of the show. What's the thought you'd like to leave with our listeners today? I would just like to tell everyone um, that if they, if they want to change their lives, they can. They have the power within them right now. I, I always say nobody needs a program to change their lives. Nobody even needs my program. Certainly we can help. We'd love to help people change their lives, and they can really build the life they want. Wonderful words. Do not forget those words that you just heard. Next week's guest is Julia Cameron, the author of The Artist's Way and the just-published new book, Prosperity Every Day. You want to hear that, I'm sure. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today. It's such a, a wonderful news to hear about St. Jude's. It was my pleasure. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Michelle Dunbar, saying thank you so much for being with us today and come back, come back again next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for The Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.